Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. I hope the last couple Sundays we kind of pulled out of Mark at the beginning of the year and we did that for the purpose of reflecting on what it means for us to think about growing, growing together as a church. That was the first Sunday in January, growing together as a church. And then last week, what it means to run the race that is set before us, to run to win, to run with aim, uh, to run this Christian life uh, with such fervor and zeal and self-control and focus that it honors the Lord and it produces much fruit. So everyone's thinking about those things, or I don't know if everyone is. I tend to think about those things at the beginning of a year. And so hopefully as we're kind of reflecting on this coming year and what it should look like, those texts can be helpful for us and set the tone for how we approach this year. And so I like doing that, I like pulling out, but I think more than that, I like getting back into our text. I like going through a portion of the scriptures, verse by verse, section by section, expositing the Word of God sequentially, and uh, that's what we're going to get back into this morning. So there you are in Mark 6, and we're going to start in verse 14. So just so you got your bearings there, Mark 6, 14. Before we get started, I wonder if you've heard this quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You heard that one? It's a quote to tuck away and reflect on from time to time. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It was said by Jim Elliott, who in the 1950s, along with some other missionary friends, Uh, died as a martyr as he tried to bring the gospel to the Alca people in Ecuador. It was something that rocked the evangelical world back in the 1950s. It was something uh, that has gone down since then as something to be reflected upon as a reminder that sometimes sharing the gospel is very costly. Sometimes bringing the word to people who don't necessarily want to hear it can cost you something. And it's a reminder that even in our modern age, Even in our modern age, uh, there are martyrs. There are people who die giving the gospel, bringing the gospel to people who have not yet heard it. Did I just lose my microphone? No? All right. Thought I maybe did. I'm just going to talk loud in case that's the case. We call them martyrs. Martyrs. The word martyr derives from the Greek word, which means witness. And it became a word that was passed down through uh, the ages in the church to refer to people who held on to their confession of faith no matter the cost, even when their life was on the line, even when it cost them to pay the ultimate price of their own life, that they were willing to die for the cause of the gospel, for the Christian gospel, for the Christian mission. These people became known as martyrs. And what you realize when you read Scripture and when you read church history, that martyrs accompany everywhere the gospel goes. Martyrs exist in every age. They have existed in every place where God's truth is spreading. Martyrs follow. You could even say that the first martyr you could trace back to Abel, as he looks at righteous Cain, feels jealousy that incites him to murder his own brother. 
the sources around church, the Old Testament history reveal to us or show us that it's probable that many of the prophets themselves, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, were killed after giving their message to the people God told them to preach to. Isaiah, uh, history says, was sawn in two by King Manasseh. Jeremiah was murdered by being stoned. Ezekiel was also murdered after being thrown into exile. You get to the church age and you read through the book of Acts. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, killed in Acts chapter 7. In Acts 12, James killed by the sword. All the apostles killed later except John, who gets exiled. And then you get out of the New Testament and you start reading about the early church. And it doesn't get any better. Polycarp burned at the stake. Justin whose last name we know in history, or we call him Justin Martyr because he was beheaded for his faith in the gospel. All down through the centuries, Christians thrown to the lions in the Colosseum or burnt at the stake. John Huss was put on the stake in the early days prior to the Reformation. And he was commanded to recant by the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, I would not for a chapel filled with gold retreat from the truth. And there he died at the stake. Later, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley also burnt at the stake for refusing to recant the gospel that they had come to believe through the Scriptures. And we might ask ourselves, does that still happen today? I mean, this is all ancient history, right? This is in centuries past. We're modern now. We've grown out of that. We have a better understanding of human rights. We're more humanitarian these days. We understand what it means to be good to one another. And after all, mankind is basically good, right? And so we don't do anything like that anymore. Simply not true. In fact, let me tell you what was happening to one family in Uganda while we were celebrating Thanksgiving and Christmas this last year. The press release came out Monday as I began to prepare for this sermon. That was January 11th. I read the opening sentence. I'll just read it to you. Yusuf Kintu, a 41-year-old former imam of the Maka Mosque in Dolway Island, Mayuge District, was killed on December 7, 2020, by a Muslim mob. This attack came just a week after Yusuf had converted to Christianity. Reading the rest of the story, apparently he was saved on November 30th. A faithful pastor had been bringing him the gospel. He was an imam, but he was open-minded. He was able to listen. And on November 30th, he repented of his sins, placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, converted to Christianity, told his wife. Three days later, his wife left him, took their children, ran off, told the community leaders who were so upset with him for his conversion that they beat him unconscious. The pastor found him there in the streets, rushed him to a hospital, got him there, but it was too late. He died December 7th, last month, exactly 40 days ago. These stories abound, and this is the world we live in. Everywhere Christianity goes, it takes with it martyrs. Those who will hold the faith, preach the faith, stand by the faith, even when it will cost them their own life. In fact, you read in Revelation chapter 6, and you get this fascinating picture about what God is doing with martyrs. These people who die for their faith in chapter 6, verse 9. 
It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Did you imagine that? He's seeing a scene of those who have been martyred, slain for the word of God, and there they are crying out, When will you avenge us, Lord? When will you avenge us? They killed us. When will you pay them back for their evil deeds? And then it says this. It says, They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Catch this. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Did you catch that last part? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. The number should be complete. Those who were to be killed. Apparently, God has a list of those whom He has predestined to give their lives up for the sake of the Gospel. Martyrdom isn't upsetting God's plan. It's part of it. That God in His sovereignty orchestrates all things even the murder of His people for the good and the advance of His Gospel. And so I think that's necessary for us to understand as we come to our text this morning where we're going to be introduced to... We've already met Him in the text. If you were here several months ago, when we began in Mark chapter 1, we were introduced to John the Baptist. Well, John, we see here, was a martyr. His life given laid down at the feet of Christ first, and then later he laid his life down in death as he was beheaded by those who hated him because of the message that he preached. John the Baptist, probably better known as John the Baptizer, because he was one who was known to be baptizing and those who responded to his message. If you turn back to Mark chapter 1, from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 13, it's about Him and His role and what He does in preparing the way for the Messiah to come. He baptizes Jesus in verses 9 to 11. And then in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And in Mark, we don't hear much of anything about John the Baptist in the following chapters. We just hear that he got arrested. Now, if we were to be able to double-click on that word arrested or zoom in and say, well, what happened? Well, that's our text this morning, is we actually get to see what actually happened. Why was he arrested? What happened to him after he was arrested? We get a little insight of that because we have a flashback now in the middle of Mark going back to this man who gave his life for the gospel. I want to read our text. You can start in verse 14. We're going to read all the way to verse 29. Follow along with me in your own copy of God's Word. King Herod heard of it. We'll pause this real quick. What did he hear of? Let's go back to the previous section. In chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles. He sent them out with his authority, and he sent them out with his message, right? So they're going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel. They're going to go out and call people to repentance. They also have been given the authority to cast out demons and to heal. And so now one man who is doing all this amazing, miraculous work, Jesus, now turns into 12 men. They're sent out 
two by two, and they're preaching the message, and they're casting out demons, and they're healing the sick. And so the word of this amazing ministry is spreading, and it says in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. I think that's just a good example for us to follow real quick. The apostles went out and they preached and they healed. But whose name did they do it in? Whose name became more well known? They did it in Jesus' name. It doesn't say Peter's name became well known or James or John's name became well known. It was Jesus' name that became well known because they are doing all their ministry in the name of Jesus. And that's how it should be here. So King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some had said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod, now we can begin a little flashback, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And he, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, for, when Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head when he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his, platter, or his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Weird text, right? Lots of stuff going on. We got some political intrigue. We got some power plays going on. We got plots and murder and all kinds of strange things. Uh, I want to first give you a little bit of historical background because you've got to get a little bit of the historical background to understand some of the characters at play, what's going on, why, uh, why are these people in play, and why are they doing this. Of course, some of it's in the text, and we'll work through the text closer, but I wanted to read it, first of all, to kind of zoom out, and we're going to go through it much more in detail here in a moment. But let's get a little bit of the historical context. Let's start with King Herod there in verse 14. Herod. You've all heard the name Herod, I'm sure. If you've been familiar with Bible stories at all, you've heard the name Herod. And I fear that most people have no idea, just as I did as I began to study, that there are Herods all over the Bible, and they're not all necessarily the same Herod, right? So if you've read the Bible story uh, around Christmas time, or the Christmas story, I should say, from the Bible, you opened up in Matthew chapter 2, and you read about King Herod, and you read about his 
murderous rage against the babies there and trying to kill them so they could kill the Messiah. Guess what? That's not the same Herod here. That Herod is a Herod known as Herod the Great. He was called Herod the Great in history because of his amazing building projects and a lot of the things he actually accomplished as a leader in Palestine there at the very end, uh, around the life of Christ, prior and after the life of Christ. He was not a good man. He was an evil man. A lot of the things that he did were based on his lusts and his lust for power and his lust for fame. And he did all this for his own name and for his own glory. Well, when he died, he had several sons. Many of these sons from different women, from different wives that he had. And four of those children were divided up and were given responsibility to rule in the same place where he had ruled. So they're divided up by four. Uh, A ruler of one-fourth of a region is called a tetrarch. So you'll read at some different, some different parts in Scripture, you'll find that Herod is also called, this Herod is called a Tetrarch. This Herod is known as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. So you have Herod the Great, that you, the, the most famous Herod, but then you got this Herod, who's his son named Herod Antipas. Philip is mentioned a little bit later. You see there in verse uh, 17, he married, this, this Herod Antipas married his brother Philip's wife okay this is odd i know okay so philip was another one of herod the Great's sons from a different woman who was given a different place to rule but he was not a great ruler not a great leader he was kind of removed from authority and this woman herodias had been living with him that was his wife and she eventually left him we'll get more into the details in a bit Antipas, though, is the Herod that we're focusing on here. There's a different Herod in Acts chapter 12. That's a Herod Agrippa. But these Herods are not all the same. Apparently, they all really like that name Herod. It's like any chance they can get to name someone Herod, they, they get it. Or if it's a girl, you just Herodias, you know, just add a little feminine ending to it. Uh, th- this is how they did things. Um, but these, this family, the Herodians, are not your godly, upright, leading family this is a political family lusting for power in fact part of the reason if you look back at verse 14 that talks it talks about herod is hearing about jesus part of the reason might be not only that jesus's disciples are doing all these amazing works but if you go back to chapter 3 and you look at verse 6 just after jesus did the amazing healing of the man with the withered hand Uh, With all the Pharisees there watching him, it says there in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. That's the Herodian family and all their political supporters. That's the Herodians. So the Pharisees are now teaming up with the Herodians to try to destroy Jesus. So here we get to chapter 6. Herod had heard of Jesus. His reputation's growing. And it's not a great reputation, according to Herod. Herod's suspicious of this figure. I want to look at this text. Here's what we're going to do now. We're actually just going to work through the text. If you have a Bible, open it up, follow along. Because we're just going to be staring down, and I'm kind of going to walk through and explain things as we go. And when we get to the end of it, we're going to unpack some applications or implications for us, what we see happening here. 
Okay, so we're going we're gonna to look at what's happening as we read through the text together. So I'm going to read and comment. Starting in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. And here's we're going to describe what King Herod thinks of this man Jesus that he keeps hearing about. He heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. I already told you why. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. See, John the Baptist was such an amazing preacher. If you remember back in chapter 1, it says all the countryside was coming out to hear him preach. He was such an amazing and powerful preacher. Just about everyone in the region of Galilee knew him and was listening to him. And so when he, after he died and Jesus appears on the scene, they start to think, I think John's back. John's back. Uh, Jesus is not as big as John at this point. He's growing in popularity, but John was such a massively popular figure. And so he thinks John's back from the dead. There's some people think that. It says that's why these miraculous powers are at work within him. Verse 15, but others said, so everyone's confused about the nature of Jesus, he's Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, there's a prophecy of Elijah coming before the great day of the Lord. And so some of the Jews are thinking, this is Elijah bringing in the day of God's judgment. Others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, like he's, he's an Isaiah, or he's a Jeremiah, or he's an Ezekiel. He's, he's one of the great prophets, this new Jesus coming. He's a great prophet. But look at what Herod thinks. Herod heard of it. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. <laughs> he, he, he's certain about it. He's like, all these other options. Yeah, okay, I don't think it's Elijah. I don't think it's a prophet. I think John's back from the dead. I think John has come back. I think this gives evidence to a little hint of some haunting guilt that Herod has experienced after killing someone he understood to be, as the text says, a righteous and holy man. The man I killed is back. Uh, It might indicate even that he understood himself to be opposing the plan of God, and now the very person that he killed is come back to haunt him, indicating that he cannot stop God's plan. We don't know all that's going on in his head there, but we do know that the text says that John thinks that Jesus is the resurrected John. Or sorry, Herod thinks that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist. That's what he thinks. Now look at verse 7. We're going to learn why Herod imprisoned John, but didn't kill him. Okay? So, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John. So that harkens back to chapter 1, verse 14, when it speaks of him being arrested. Herod, who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Oh, that's why Herod put John in prison. It was for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, let me just tell you a little bit of what happens. This all gets super weird. Okay, so you got Herod the Great. Remember him? The big guy with all the kids? Okay, he's got an older son who marries uh, a woman named Bernice. This oldest son has a daughter. That daughter is Herodias. Okay? And then later, Herod the Great has another son, Philip. And he says, Philip, you're going to marry Herodias. That's his half-niece, by the way. Weird stuff going on. They get married. 
Well, later comes Antipas, the Herod that we get in this text. And Antipas was assigned to married because Herod, king, great Herod, always assigned his children to be arranged in political marriages to make sure his power was secure. So he has him marry uh, a princess from Nabataea. Nabataean princess that was a total political arranged marriage. Well, what happens is that Herod Antipas in the text, right, and Philip, these half-brothers, they're kind of ruling together. Well, Herod Antipas goes up to see his brother Philip. And as he's going up to see his brother Philip, he meets Herodias. And Josephus, actually the historian, has a whole bunch of detail on how this all went down. But Antipas and Herodias end up having this affair. And they both agree that they need to leave their spouses and get married together. Okay? So, so Antipas is going to leave this Nabataean princess later on. This historically, if you're a hist- history nerd, this will maybe fascinate you. But that upsets the nation that they're trying to keep peace with. And later, that is the nation that comes in and wipes out Antipas. And so his own lusts end up destroying him. So he leaves that marriage. Uh, Herodias leaves Philip. They get married. For Herodias, uh, Antipas was a a step up politically. So she thinks, maybe I can get a little bit higher on the ladder if I marry Antipas. So she marries him. It ends up being that Herod and Herodias, it's like Herod is her half-uncle. And so they move in. They get married. Herodias comes to live with them. And uh, they have this marriage that's happening, although it's widely understood to be a completely immoral marriage. And that's why John, you see it in verse 17, or sorry, verse 18, for John had been saying to them, he'd been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's saying, John is not backing down. Remember, John's message was repent, the kingdom's coming. Repent, turn from your sin. And John had no problem with calling out specifics in people's lives when they weren't living according to God's revealed will. And so John's saying, hey, Herod Antipas and Herodias, your marriage is a violation of the law of God. And actually Leviticus 18.16, Leviticus 20.21 explicitly states that this marriage of your brother's wife is an abomination and it's sinful and John's calling them on it and he's calling them to repent and so guess what happens guess what happens herodias doesn't like it very much verse 19 herodias has a grudge against him and wants to put him to death i mean it's one thing to have a grudge it's when you're in power and you have a grudge you can say all right let's just eliminate them let's put them to death but listen to this this is fascinating she couldn't why verse 20 for herod feared john Herod had this fear of John. Why? Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Isn't that fascinating? Herod knew that there's something different about this man, John. That John is a holy man. He's he's righteous. I I can't uh, put any reproach on his name. His reputation is impeccable. He has a zeal for righteousness. No one can throw anything against him that sticks. Any accusation against him will not stand. That's the kind of man he is. And so he knows there's something special about this man. And so he keeps him safe there in verse 20. Look at this. When he heard him, so Herod is regularly hearing John It says, he's greatly perplexed 
and yet he heard him gladly. Here's a man who's hearing one of the most powerful preachers of all time on a regular basis. He's perplexed by it. That means he's kind of confused. He can't really figure out all that John is saying. But he hears him gladly again and again and again. Isn't that fascinating that it is possible for someone to listen to the most amazing preaching week in, week out, and be interested and hear it gladly and yet never repent? I hope none of you are like that. Hearing a message again and again about what it means to repent, being interested, maybe a little bit perplexed and confused, but listening gladly, unwilling to actually change your life. That's what's happening with Herod. He's hearing him, but he, he knows that John has an impeccable character. He fears him for it. He listens to him gladly, but he doesn't quite get it. He's confused. He's confused. So he doesn't kill John, although Herodias wants him dead. John keeps him alive and puts him in prison. Let me explain to you the prison. The prison's... Uh, actually been found the site of the prison it's a fascinating place when you look at it uh, it was in the herod family for a long time and what how they designed this prison that john would have been in on top of the prison you had the palace uh, where this banquet that we're about to read of it could take place where herod could bring all his friends and all his cronies and all his pals and they could come and party uh, underneath the palace deep down into the desert mountain where they were was carved into these rocks uh, a dark, dark dungeon. And so this is kind of fascinating. I always wondered, you know, how long did it take the executioner to go track down John the Baptist? Did this all happen at once at the same day? This all happened and could have happened within the hour because John was imprisoned underneath the palace where the banquet is taking place. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he's got all these men, all these leaders. It's his birthday. He's throwing a party. Let's all come over at the palace. And he's got this amazing setup where they're going to feast and they're going to enjoy this time together celebrating. Verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So they arrange for Herodias' daughter. Her name in history is Salome, and you could read about her. She's actually the inspiration of several plays and movies and plots and things. And she is brought in before this group of men. And I'll tell you, she probably didn't do the cha-cha or a jig or something. She goes in and dances before all these men. And these men who are just wanting to be self-indulgent, just fill up every lust and passion. They're eating, they're drinking, and here they have this girl that dances for them. And it pleases them all, and the king says to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. This is Herod clearly thinking of himself way too highly. Uh, he is not Caesar. Uh, he is not uh, actually that Im- uh, powerful in the grand scheme of things. He's a tetrarch. Uh, he's thinking way too highly of himself. In fact, if he were to mess up in any little thing or to upset Caesar in any way, Caesar would just immediately dismiss him from his role. But here he is on his high horse, filled up with pride. Ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And then look at this, verse 23. And he vowed to her. He makes this promise. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out 
and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Remember, this is Herodias, her mother. The one who doesn't like John. The one who wants to kill John. The one who has a grudge. For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. So the daughter runs down. She finds her mom. Hey, the king just made me this big promise that I will get whatever I ask for. What should I ask for? And that grudge had been percolating in her heart for some time. Herod had probably already imprisoned John for over a year. And so she had been stewing on this. And here she goes, hey, right downstairs. I know what I can get you to ask. You can ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the daughter goes with it. She came in immediately. I imagine this is all happening within minutes. This is probably happening within the hour. Mark uses that word immediately. With haste, it says, to the king. And I imagine this. You could kind of put the, uh, the dramatic picture in your mind. All these men eating and drinking and uh, they're clinking their glasses and their, all the conversation around the table, the laughter and everything. And here comes this girl. And she walks into the room understanding now she finally has what she's going to ask the king. And she says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You could almost imagine all the other leaders look at her. Silence starts to fill the room. The clinging of silverware stops. The laughter comes to an end. And all eyes are on Herod Antipas there. What is he going to do? And he sees himself as his reputation on the line. What kind of leader is he going to be? Is he going to keep his word or is he not? Is he going to keep the vow that he made or is he not? In his reputation, he feels is on the line, so he's got to decide what kind of leader is he going to present himself to be before all his military commanders and his leading men and these nobles. And it says there, verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. He knew this was wrong. He knew this was the wrong thing for him to do. That's why he didn't kill him in the first place. He knew he was wrong, but here he is. Look at this. Watch this. Because of his oaths, because of his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. If you make a bad oath, a sinful oath, you should should repent of the oath and not carry it out lest you commit two sins, a bad oath and then doing the bad thing you shouldn't have done in the first place. Well, here he makes a bad oath and then he makes good on his bad oath. And he says, okay, he gives them permission. It says, verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. This party has turned dark. This party has turned morbid. All the people, I wonder what everyone's thinking now as this is happening before their eyes, murder is now happening. And verse 27, he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. This would have been an immensely bloody affair. And he gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to his mother. John sees all this he knows the blood is on his hands he knows he's guilty he, he knows he shouldn't have done it that's why he's exceedingly sorry he knows he shouldn't have killed this man whom he understood to be righteous and holy 
He, that's why he's keeping him safe in the beginning. But now Herod knows John's blood is on my hands. Now that helps you understand the very beginning, doesn't it? Jesus, who is he? He's back. I killed him. I shouldn't have. And now he's back. And it makes you wonder how much is his guilty conscience just stabbing him as he knows that he should not have done this. And now judgment is coming because he is raised from the dead. Verse 29, his disciples, that's the disciples of John. John has disciples. Even you find them in Acts, still following John. So John's disciples heard of it. They came, they took his body, they laid it in a tomb. What a fascinating interlude in the life of Christ. All we get about Jesus is the very beginning that Herod thought that Jesus was John. This isn't about Jesus. It's an interlude that Mark includes to help his readers see partially what does it look like to be faithful to King Jesus. What might happen to those who are faithful? If you remember the audience of Mark, we talked about this at the very beginning. Who was Mark written for? Remember, this is a letter written for a people at a specific time. Who was Mark written for? Likely, it was written for Christians in Rome who were there in the 60s A.D., who are seeing Nero become more and more violent and even watching some of their Christians being thrown to the lions. That's who were the first recipients of this letter. And so they are reading, wondering, what, are we outside of God's favor uh, for being so beaten up and abused by Rome? Like, what, why are we experiencing such harsh treatment by, by our government? And, and Mark writes this story. And I imagine them reading and going, oh, this is, I guess, what we signed up for. This is what it means to be faithful to the Lord. Is not necessarily that everything just becomes fine and dandy and easy. In fact, the moment we begin following Jesus, we align ourselves with principles that are totally contradictory to the principles of this world. Let's look at some implications of this. I want to look at four implications of this. First, the danger of following Jesus in a fallen world. The danger of following Jesus in a fallen world. You follow Jesus, you put yourself at odds with the world. Mark that down and remember that as you go to work on Monday, as you interact with your family at get-togethers, as you interact with unbelievers who are not living for Christ, for you to say, I'm in with Christ. I'm, I'm going for Him. I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to be obedient to Him. Puts you at odds with people who don't want to worship Jesus Christ. In fact, go back and look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had, been, he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What is John doing? John is being faithful to teach these people about the law of God, and they were rejecting it. Was John being foolish? Ask yourself that question. Many of us, under the name of trying to be wise, never share the gospel with anyone. 
And here is John not being foolish, but being righteous, being bold, being courageous. He's sharing a message with people he knows the message will offend them, but for their good they need to hear it because it's the only way they'll be ever brought to repentance, but they hate it. Herodias has a grudge against him and eventually ends up winning in her schemes to murder him. There might be people, church, that hold a grudge against you if you're faithful to the gospel. And you might do all you can to be wise and winsome and caring and and to follow the Lord as best you can. You might live a holy and righteous and upright life and people will still be rubbed the wrong way simply because of the fact that you represent an absolute authority called Jesus. The moment you call yourself a Christ follower, you represent something to the watching world, to the unbelieving world, something that will often rub them the wrong way. Some people will try to eliminate you from their life, just as these people did. John threw him in a prison. Herodias wanted to kill him. And some people might do the same for you if you're faithful. You might be ignored when promotions are offered. You might be excluded when plans are being made. They might not like you because of the beliefs that you hold. They might be having a happy conversation and you walk into the room and everything goes silent because you're the Christian and you serve a God who's holy. And so you come to represent to them holiness and righteous and the light that shines upon them offends them. John chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. There are some people who are living in sin, and they don't want any Christians around them, because Christians shine a light. And so they come to be turned off by Christians, and don't want anything to do with them. So instead of repenting, they hate the light. This might happen. There's a danger. There's a cost to following Jesus in a fallen world. And John demonstrates that very clearly. Secondly, human suffering does not mean divine displeasure. Think with me about the contrasts of this scene that we've just read. Herod and his cronies partying, feasting, enjoying the laughter of friends, sitting around at these rich tables, eating and drinking whatever they want, indulging in every central activity. And some floors beneath them, a lonely man in a dark prison cell who, unbeknownst to him, in a matter of minutes, will be murdered in a disgraceful and despicable way. And let me ask you this. Which one of these has... God's favor? Who of these people is God pleased with? You see, through the outside world, the blessing seems to belong to Herod, right? To those who are looking with not eyes of faith, but just the eyes of the world, you see Herod, you see all that he's experiencing, you say, oh, that's the life. That's what we want. And God is looking at his man there in the cave underneath that palace. You see, that's my man. That's the one I bless. That's the one I give my favor to. Listen, there's different ways of viewing the world, and there's different ways of viewing your own walk with Christ. In the Reformation, Martin Luther 
taught that there are two approaches to viewing God in the world. I want you to follow this. If you're a note taker, I want you to write these two ways of looking down. He said you can either embrace a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. Let me explain this to you. He says if you embrace a theology of glory, you essentially paint God to fit in your own expectations. You have certain hopes, you have certain expectations, and you define your theology of who God is according to how you think He should behave. For example, you expect that God should reward those who do good things, therefore those who do good things go to heaven. That is an example of what a theology of glory might think. Justice, God's justice is like my sense of justice, God's ways are like my sense of of what things should be like. I basically say that God is like me. That's the theology of glory. He called it that. But there was another way of looking at the world. He called the theology of the cross. Where to understand God and the world, you don't start with human expectations. You start with God's self-revelation. And according to Luther, and we would be with him on this, where does God reveal Himself most stunningly, most clearly, most gloriously at the cross. The implications of this idea are shattering. Whether you expect God to do what you think He ought to do, or whether He shatters human expectations by revealing Himself in ways like death on a cross. Let me read to you Carl Truman as he reflects upon this, is an amazing paragraph, well-written and moving and profound. He says, what does, he's talking about the cross and what we see at the cross. He says, what does this theologian of glory see there? Well, based upon rational, empirical inquiry, one would have to say that the man on the cross is a filthy criminal of some kind. Why else would he be dying such an indescribable death as a punishment? The cross is a disgrace both by the standards of Roman law and Jewish custom, and thus the one upon whom such punishment is inflicted must be the lowest kind of criminal imaginable. In addition, one would have to say that he is broken, crushed, defeated. As he dies upon the cross, we see no king, no victory over sin, no cause for rejoicing or glorifying the one who hangs there. The eyes of reason, judging on the basis of we, what we as humans expect, would have to see the scene as one of darkness, pain, and deep personal tragedy. The theologian of the cross, however, approaches the event with such eyes of faith and with the criteria provided by God's revelation of Himself, sees The very different picture. Not a sinner on the cross, but the only sinless man. Not defeat, but triumph. Not wrath, but mercy. What we have on the cross is not the defeat of a criminal, but the triumph of a king, the king of glory. Not the victory of the powers of evil, but the victory of good over evil. Not the hopeless curse of God, but the blessings of God by which all may be saved. Church, Beware of seeing the world with merely human eyes. We reflected on Chris, at Christmas time 
the maker of the world, is born in a manger. The man on the cross is the king of the universe. Want your life? Lose it for Christ. Let's re-look at this text. What do you see, church? What do you see, John, in that cold chamber? What do you see when you see these people celebrating and they're partying and they're indulgence? What do you see? Can we look at these types of events with eyes of faith and see that those who look despised by the world are actually kings and queens in the next world? Those who give their lives up in this life find it. Those who are weak are made strong. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Church, rethink everything in light of the cross. Because the cross is now the pattern for us to view everything. Your expectations are not always reality. And so what we expect to be happening as we look at John, we say, what a poor, pitiful way to go. But when we look at it with eyes of faith, we say, that's my hero. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. Because God is sitting there approving what John has done for his great name. Third, many unsaved sinners are haunted by a guilty conscience. This passage shows this happening in Herod. Why else would he think that Jesus is John back from the dead? It's because he knew he's a righteous man. He knew he shouldn't have killed him in the first place. That's why he felt so bad, so sorry when he finally did. There he is, wondering if maybe he's done something so wicked and so evil, there's no way to ever fix the problem that he's just made. See, Christians, we believe in Romans 1. And Romans 1 teaches that God has revealed Himself in creation, but that every single person suppresses the truth about God in their unrighteousness. So they know there's a God, but they don't want to know there's a God because the light of God would shine on them and could reveal their guilt. But the Bible also says in Romans 2, another chapter we believe, we believe all of them, by the way, we believe Romans 2, which says we have a conscience. And your conscience can condemn you. And so we believe that every person, regardless of their religion, understands that there's a God to whom they are accountable because they have a conscience that functions in them that will condemn them for their wickedness. So I believe, based on what the Bible reveals to us, this is what I think Christians should believe, that there are unbelievers walking around in our neighborhoods, perhaps they're our neighbors, perhaps they're our friends, perhaps they're in our family, They have rejected God, but they live day by day with a guilty conscience. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know that their sins matter. And a holy God. They walk with this nagging sense of guilt and they find ways to try to deaden their guilt, be it drinks or drugs or sex or entertainment, what it might be. It varies from person to person trying to find anything to fill up the void or to numb the the conscience that is condemning them, to drown out the alarm of their own guilt. They'll do anything they can. Rather than 
know that in Christ they can come and have their guilt removed, that they can find mercy. They'll try to cover their shame up in every which way, cover up their guilt in every possible way, not knowing that there is a Savior that invites the guilty to come to Him. There's a Savior who invites those who feel shame to come to Him. And that He receives them with open arms. That He removes their guilt by paying for their sins on the cross. And He removes their shame by welcoming them and giving them a new status as a forgiven, adopted child of God. See, Herod, in the moment where his guilt rose up and condemned him, if even he, the sinner that he was, turned and repented and looked for forgiveness in God and looked for mercy in God, guess what? He would have had it. He would have had it. The most vile of sinners will find mercy when they come to Jesus Christ. And I wonder if there's anyone here who has been trying to numb the guilt, trying to push it down like a beach ball underwater. You're trying to push it down and the sense of guilt just keeps popping back up and you can't do it anymore. You can't entertain yourself enough. You can't numb yourself enough. You can't callous yourself enough by indulging in all the entertainments and sins of the world. You need something else. Here's the, here's the gospel for you. Here's the good news you need. If you feel guilty and you need mercy, there is mercy for you. The, 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 what you need to hear is that, yes, God is righteously angry with your sin, but there is a Redeemer for you. That God reconciles us to Himself through this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that when you repent of your sins and cast yourself at the feet of the Savior, He does forgive your sins, remove your guilt and your shame. And so if you suffer from guilt, do you? In shame, the door has been wide open and you can come to Him and embrace Him and be forgiven. If you're a Christian, be reminded that some of, people, some of the people around you are walking around with this guilt and they need someone to tell them about the way that guilt can be removed. And unless they hear about Jesus, they will have no way to deal with their guilt. We need to tell them. And some of those people might treat you like Herodias treated John, have a grudge against you. And some of those people might thank you, eternally thank you for giving them the message they needed to be reconciled to God and to have their guilt removed. Here's the last thing. Number four. This passage reminds us that we should not fear death. John is not going to back down. He's going to preach a message of repentance and it's going to cost him his head. He's going to do it anyway. He's going to be faithful. I find fascinating here that John, or sorry, that Herod thinks Jesus is John raised from the dead. We might hear that and go, what a dumb thing to think. Why would Herod believe in this resurrection of John? Why would he believe that? I want to give Herod a little more credit Herod's right that there's a resurrection coming. He's wrong about the timing of it. But he's right about a resurrection. I think so often we Christians forget about it. We are going to be resurrected. You know that? Resurrected to glorified bodies. 
resurrected to have bodies that will last forever. There will be a day that you are whole and healthy forever without any possibility of dying. That will happen for each one of you, Christian. And therefore, death does not have the same sting that it used to have before we knew Christ. So you can die, your body can be laid in a tomb, and I can promise you on the words of Christ that you will one day rise. That you will be raised from the dead. And this truth has been so precious that it's catapulted people to go face any fear because ultimately the thing they fear cannot take their eternal life. They will rise on the last day to everlasting glory. That you can go to the most dangerous spot on the planet and you can risk your life. You can lay it down and you can lose your head like John. And you can know for certain that one day you will rise whole and healthy, never to die again. So what are we afraid of? It's truths like these that send us off to these places in every corner of the globe to risk our lives for the gospel. Friends, don't forget about the resurrection. John will be raised with the rest of us. He'll have his head on straight. And we'll be able to thank him for the example that he set for us. Until we see him and give him that thanks, let's embrace who he is and as, as an example for us. Let's view all of life through the theology of the cross. Things are not always what they seem to be. That sometimes death is life and weakness is strength. And God is using these seemingly insignificant things to do glorious things, even sometimes putting you in a prison cell that you might be an example for generations to come of what it means to live and die for Christ. Let's not look at John with pity. With eyes of faith, we look at this text. He's the victor. It's all the rest of these guys who are selfishly indulging the desires of the the flesh that we we ought to look at them with pity. This reshapes the whole of how we live. So church... From now on, we embrace the theology of the cross. We say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the characteristics of those who inherit the kingdom. It's not the rich and the powerful, the popular, the famous in this world who are experiencing the blessings of God. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for this man who has gone before us. May we in every possible way follow his example. May you empower us to be faithful no matter the cost. And, Lord, for those who are here dealing with a sense of guilt that they don't know what to do with, I pray that you would clarify to them this morning the glory of the forgiveness of sins. That they could have their guilt removed. Lord, do that now. Draw them to Yourself. Welcome them into Your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name.